We turn our attention to Psalm number 8. And as we examine this psalm, there is no specific event or period of David's life where we can definitively identify when David would have written this particular psalm. Some think that it relates to David's victory over Goliath. And the reason for that is in the superscription, it is a song to be sung or played with the Gittith. And the Gittith is somewhat synonymous to the city of Gath, which is where Goliath was from. But it's a real difficult connection to make between David writing this as a hymn of praise over his victory with Goliath. But what we do know for sure is the the superscription tells us that this psalm is to be played with this instrument which is unknown. It is thought to be an instrument that exhibits a sound of great praise, unlike in the past some of the psalms we've looked at where it would be played with something akin to an oboe, which has a very somber and a very depressing sound to it. This is a joyful song. It is a joyful psalm. It is the first psalm sequentially that really ascribes this kind of praise to God, and it is considered to be a hymn of praise. It does have a little bit of a messianic and a prophetic nature to it, as we'll look in just a few moments. But let's look at Psalm number 8. We're going to read verses 1 through 9, and then make some application to it. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than God and you crown him with glory and majesty You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. These nine verses are really separated into two major sections. It lays out very simply... And very easily, and as we look at this together, our first section is simply this, the Lord is majestic. This psalm begins and ends with the same phrase, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. And so David is speaking of the praise of God, not just for himself, but for the entire nation of Israel. It is a very clear statement of not only the sovereignty of God, but it establishes, it establishes his singular rule over all of creation. David's praise of God is expressed not just for Israel, but for all of creation to rightly ascribe praise to the Creator. That word majestic means glorious. And as we look at the gloriousness of God, words are really difficult to adequately explain all that that means. The word majestic is a royal attribute which expresses many things about God. One of those things is God's victory over His enemies. God will always conquer His enemies. It may not be right now, but in the outcome of eternal events, God will always be victorious over his enemies. A part of the majesticness of God is that his power brings judgment over and against the enemies of God. 
The glory of God is also a part of the supremacy of his law. These things that God has spoken are true for all of eternity, and his glory speaks in the supremacy of what God has said. It also speaks of his absolute sovereign rule over all of creation. You know, it's not difficult for us to ask ourselves this question from time to time. God, are you really in control? Because we can't see it. We don't experience it like we should. And this psalm rests, the idea for us is this, that God is sovereignly ruling over his creation, whether we can see it, acknowledge it, or even appreciate it. All creation reveals the power and the glory of God's name. We see a very similar statement made in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, where we read from the words of, from the mouth of Paul, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they, mankind, is without excuse. But you know, only God's people can truly know how to respond to this revelation of God in his created world that can only respond to the revelation of His majesty through what He has created, because God has revealed to us His name. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all of the earth. The name of God, Yahweh, is the name which is above every name. It is the name at which every knee will bow, and eventually every tongue will confess that He is the Lord. The true glory and majesty of God is revealed in His creation. It is revealed through His creation. And it is ultimately revealed through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We ought to always remember, we ought to always remind ourselves, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all of the earth. The reality that God has revealed to us, the truth about who He is, has revealed to us His name ought to bring from our mouths words of great praise, knowing that God has opened up our eyes and our hearts to the truth of who He is. So the Lord is majestic. We're going to look at this in two ways here. Number one, His majesty is displayed in the heavens. The second part of verse 1 says, Who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. The majesty of God, the glory of God, the creation of God, has been displayed above the heavens. Now, when David ascribes this kind of praise to God, as David observes what God has created, he had no telescope. He had no space travel. There was no exploration. David could simply look into the darkness of the sky and to see the stars, to see the moon and the sun, and perhaps even see a shooting star from time to time. And nonetheless, David was was able to ascribe great praise to the greatness of what God has created. I wonder what David would have said had he knew what we know today about this vast universe that God has created. I want to read a few things for you that help us to understand and appreciate just how marvelous the creation of God really is. The vastness of outer space and the coordination of all that God has created in the galaxies is absolutely astounding. If you could travel at the speed of light, which is 186,000 miles per second, it would take you eight minutes to get to the sun. That doesn't sound like a long time, but when you do the math, on 186,000 miles per second, 
That's a long way. To go from the sun to the center of the Milky Way, which is our galaxy, would take about 33,000 years. The Milky Way belongs to a group of some 20 galaxies known as the local group. And to cross the local group, you'd have to travel for 2 million years. The local group belongs to the Virgo cluster, part of an even larger local supercluster, which is a half a billion light years across. To cross the entire universe as we know it would take us approximately 20 billion light years. And many astrophysicists tell us that 95% of the creation is unknown and not knowable. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. His majesty is displayed through his creation. You know, it's astounding to me that these educated and learned men can evaluate the vastness of what God has created and say and conclude with great integrity, at least in their intentions, it just happened out of nothing. Poof, it was there. How could that be? There's a story of one of the great explorers early on, and I forget who it was. I think it was Copernicus. And he had created this solar system with chains and pulleys and gears and had all these things moving to simulate as best as he could the way all of the known planets orbit around the sun. And one of his friends came to him and said, who made that for you? And he said, nobody. It just appeared out of nowhere. And his friend got the message. The vastness of what God has created is far beyond our ability to even understand. Number two, His majesty is displayed in life. Verse two says, From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful Cease. That phrase, you have established strength, can also be translated, you have established praise. And so as we look at this incredible gift of life, the complexity of this little baby who would be nursing on his mother, it speaks of the wonder of God's creation, the majesty of what God has created in human life. The complexity of what God has created in human life will shut up God's enemies at some point. God has established strength in himself through the gift of life to oppose his enemies and to one day make them cease. John Calvin said that the process of the conception and the birth of an infant displays God's splendor so clearly that even a nursing infant brings down to the ground the fury of God's enemies. You know, we take this gift of life for granted, don't we? But another baby is born until it's your baby or until it's your grandbaby. And then that baby takes on an entirely different meaning for you. But Calvin didn't know anything about the complex biological and chemical processes that take place in the mother and the child at birth. Listen to this. The human brain has 10 billion nerve cells interacting in coordination to allow us to function as we do. Our eyes have about 100 million receptor cells in each retina, which also contains four other layers of nerve cells. 
This system makes billions of calculations per second traveling through your optic nerve to the brain, which has more than a dozen separate vision centers to process it. Our eyes can move and focus faster than any man-made camera. Our skin has more than 2 million tiny sweat glands, about 3,000 per square inch to regulate our temperature. Our heart beats an average of 75 times per minute, which would be 40 million times per year, or 2.5 billion times in 70 years, and it pumps about 3,000 gallons of blood every day. Our body is supported by more than 200 finely designed bones connected to more than 500 muscles and many tendons and ligaments. Some muscles respond to your conscious will and others will react automatically. Our digestive system contains about 35 million glands that secrete juices that digest our food and sustain our lives. This complexity, this Amazing thing that God has created doesn't even take into consideration our lungs, our sense of smell or taste or touch, our endocrine glands, our immune system, our central nervous system, and much, much more. And yet it all works together seamlessly. We would read later in Psalm 139, verse 14, I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. You know, when something's not going right in our body, it creates a big problem for us, doesn't it? What's going on? Why isn't this right? I've got this pain. I've got this problem. And although 99% of our body can be functioning, functioning perfectly, that one little thing can cause us to begin to wonder and question about how God has made us, about what God is doing, about why God seems to be absent. Yet we are fearfully and wonderfully made, and the gift of life speaks of the majesty of God. The beauty and the complexity of the human body confronts the enemies of God who say we have evolved from animals and we're not uniquely created by God in His image and for His glory. The gift of life, the vastness of what God has created will bring God's enemies to their needs. Number two, the big picture here, the Lord loves us. Not only is He majestic, the creator of this vast universe, the creator of this incredibly complex body that you and I possess, but the Lord loves us. Verses 3 and 4, when I consider your heavens, when I give thought to, when I take time to meditate upon, when I evaluate and examine your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him? And the son of man that you care for him. In contrast to this vast universe that God has created, you and I individually are just a little speck like a grain of sand on a beach. And yet even though that is true, we these puny and tiny specks, we have been created to hold a very unique position in God's creation. Now, the Hebrew word 
for man here emphasizes man in his frail and human existence. The phrase referring to him as the son of man may hint at our fallen condition since all of the sons of Adam were born after his likeness and his image and inherited sin. So when we answer this question that has plagued humanity from the very beginning, what is man, God, that you would give thought to him? So, number one, we see that we are in God's mind. He loves us. We are in his man, in his mind. What is man that you take thought of him? The phrase can also be translated, what is man that you remember him? After the fall, and after man's expulsion from the Garden of Eden, rather than cutting man off forever, as God could have, and would have been justified in doing so, God still had a plan. A plan that was set before the foundation of the world to redeem mankind back to himself through his one and only begotten Son to restore the tarnished image of God back to its intended state. Mankind is always on the mind of God. Although we are mere earthlings, we are the particular object of God's attention. Do you believe that's true? Do you believe that God gives thought to you? You see, if you're not so sure about that, or if you're convinced that that is inaccurate, you're in direct contradiction to what the Word of God says. What is man that you would remember him? Secondly, not only are we in his mind, we are on his heart. And the Son of Man, that you care for Him. Now, these are two rhetorical questions that David is asking. It's designed to evoke a sense of awe and wonder at the greatness of God. Especially today, as we consider the universe that we live in, the power and the majesty that God possesses, and yet He has us on His mind and holds us in His heart, knowing that God truly Loves us. The love that God has for us, the care that He shows to us, the provision that He makes for us, and the blessings He gives to us ought to convince us that God truly does love us. His children, those who know Him by His name. Not because of who we are, not because of what we can do, but simply because of who he is. Now, David asks these two rhetorical questions. What is man that you would remember him? And the son of man that you would care for him? And now David answers these two rhetorical questions. Number three, we are crowned with glory. This is the reason why God remembers us. The reason that God loves us is because we have been crowned with his glory. Verse five says, you, yet you have made him a little lower than God and you crown him with glory in majesty. Now, let's fast forward just for a moment to the book of Hebrews, where the writer of Hebrews ascribes these verses to Jesus himself as the Son of Man, and it makes this psalm somewhat messianic and prophetic, because Jesus would be the one that would ultimately fulfill the glory and the majesty with which man has been created with. But not only is this messianic as it relates to Christ, it also speaks to every man because we have all been created in his image. But man is unique in God's creation. We have the ability to know him, to love him, 
to respond to him and to worship him. The animal kingdom has no such privilege. The inanimate world that God has created has no such ability. And so you and I, unique in God's creation, created in His glory and in His image, have the ability to praise Him because of who He is and because of what He has done. We are created in the image of God and we are to reflect His glory in our life. Although our lives are deeply stained by sin, We are still the crown jewel of God's creation, the unique object of His love, and the benefactor of God's plan of redemption. Although we are created to be less than God, a little lower than the angels, we nonetheless have been crowned with the glory of God. You know, it's real difficult to strike a balance between having a proper perspective of ourselves that we are thoroughly sinful, that there is nothing good in us apart from what Christ would bring. We are utterly and thoroughly selfish in all that we think and say and do. Yet nonetheless, we are still God's crown jewel of creation. We have been crowned with the glory of God. Number four, we have been given dominion over the earth. Verse six reads, you make him... To rule over the works of your hands, you have put all things under his feet. Again, this has a dual meaning. Not only does this relate to Christ, to whom all things will be subjected, but it also refers to us as we have been given the responsibility to rule over God's created world. In Genesis 1, Adam was given the task of ruling over all that God had created. And verses 7 and 8 are almost word for word what we would read in the creation account in Genesis. Verse 7 and 8 read that all excuse me, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea, this is the expanse of the dominion that man has been given over God's created world. The great king... The majestic one has appointed man to maintain dominion over his creation. Everything has been put in subjection under his feet. We are not to be controlled by creation. We are not to worship creation. But we are to exercise great care in managing what God has created for us to enjoy. Man has accomplished some remarkable feats and gaining dominion over creation. When you think about the wonders of modern science, especially in the medical field, you can see how man's life has been radically changed. The kinds of things that are so routine in our medical procedures today were not even thought of a hundred years ago, much less in David's day. But think of all the wonders of modern science. Think of all the marvel that we have in medical science. And yet in all of these accomplishments, they are still somewhat tainted by sin. Because man is proud and man boasts in his discoveries, if you will, and ignores the fact that God has given us the ability to know these things and to do the things that we marvel at today. Like the, to- like the builders of the Tower of, Bab- of Babel, modern man is proud and uses his scientific breakthrough 
to proclaim his independence from God. Man is great. Man is powerful. Man is smart. Who is this God? With a few more scientific breakthroughs, we can potentially cure all of our diseases and live forever. This is what man thinks. Nothing is incurable. Nothing is impossible. Because man is so great. But science cannot reconcile man back to God. Nor can we reconcile ourselves back to God. So what did God do? God sent his one and only son to be the sacrifice for our sin, to pay our penalty, to fulfill Psalm 8 in a way that we never can. In Hebrews 2, you would read almost a word-for-word rendition of Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6. And then this is what the writer of Hebrews says in verse 9. But we do not see him, excuse me, but we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by grace, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And so our psalm concludes in the same way that it began, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I'll ask you the rhetorical question. Is God filled with majesty? Is God filled with awe and wonder in your mind and in your life? When was the last time you sat and looked at what God has created and praised Him and would agree with David and say, Oh Lord, my Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It's so easy for us to take the greatness of God, the majesty of God for granted, that we often fail to praise Him in a way that we should because it becomes routine. It becomes almost cliche. But I want to leave you with this, that you and I are the crown jewel of God's creation. Given a unique privilege to know Him, to relate to Him, to serve Him, and to verbally praise Him, and to live a life in service to Him. How well are we doing that today? Father, we give You thanks that You are a majestic God. Thank You, Father, that words are truly inadequate to describe in detail and completeness just how majestic You really are. You are filled with glory and splendor in ways that we have not yet seen. But one day we will see. One day we will see you face to face. We will see you as you truly are. And like the angels, we will fall at your feet and worship you for all eternity. Father, how we thank you for what you've enabled us to know about what you've created And God, I pray that every time we learn something new about your created world, that you would bring back this psalm to our memory and that we would say, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. God, would you help us to declare the majesty of your name everywhere we go and everything we do. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.
Would you stand as we sing? Or